and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. If you're new here, I do want to say a big welcome with Pastor. So glad you you chose to be with us. We know there's a lot of other choices out there. We're glad you worship with us because, well, we think we're awesome, so we hope you do too. Um, yeah, it is, uh, it's always fun to be up here. Um, these lights are really, I'm usually the guy in the back. Melvin took my job today, moving the, the curtain back and forth. So I'm used to looking at the back of your heads, not the front of your faces. Well, or your face. I don't think you have a back to your face, but your, your, your faces. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. That wasn't a planned joke. Um, so at any point I start doing this, you guys just ignore it. It's just muscle memory as I'm watching people walk out while I'm talking, which isn't great either. But uh, <laughs> hopefully not too many of those happen either. But I do love being here. I love coming to church. I love having more family than just the brother God gave me. And uh, yeah, it's always fun to be here. I love joking. So there's, please laugh whenever you think I'm joking, and hopefully you won't laugh in the wrong places. So yeah, um, it is, it's good to be here, man. Jared asked me to, asked me to do this. I, I did, I, I did want to tell him no, just because it's always a little nerve wracking coming up here. And, but as it turns out, I don't say no easily. And Lacey took full advantage of that when she asked me to marry her. Um, because that wasn't a joke. That was, that was, that was real, man. Okay, we already messed this up. But no, seriously. Whew. Uh, I don't, I don't say no easily. Um, as we asked me, I, I didn't say no, but uh, yeah, she tells me I got to get better at saying no to people. And because I usually come home from work and I'm like, you know, I picked up extra work. I'm doing somebody else's job. And she's like, well, did you tell them no? I was like, eh, I don't want to, you know, I like to think I can do everything. And she's like, we got to get better at telling people no. And so I st- I've gotten better. I tell her no more often. And, and she gets mad at me now. And I'm like, well, <laughs> you can't have it both ways. Either I got to do it or I can't do it. it. Just the other day, she was down on her knees begging me, begging me. And I was like, no, I'm not coming out from underneath this bed and fighting you, woman. And, uh, Texting mom and dad, like, you guys want to come over for a couple hours or days or whatever and settle this situation down? But yeah, I just, I don't. I don't say no easily. Although uh, everyone who has kids know that kids can say no to anybody, right? They don't care who you are. They don't care how big, mean, or ugly you are. They'll tell you no, no problem. And it, and it makes, makes grown-ups go just, just nuts. If you haven't noticed, this is the intro to my message, so it, it does get a little bit better, I promise. Um, but kids, they'll say no to anybody, right? And it makes you go, as a parent, I mean, that's, man, that's like a trigger for you, right? I and mean, it makes you go a Hulk, makes Lacey rip phone books, and so that's why I hide under beds. But it'll make you just, it makes you say those dumb parent things. How many people have said dumb parent things to their kids when they made them mad? Right? It's things I swear I'd never say. My parents said them to me. And I was like, I'm never going to say that. My kid tell me no. I'm like, what, you want a whipping? What kid? Nobody wants a Not most people don't want a whip. Nobody wants whippings, man. And, but kids, they, they make you say dumb things like that. You want to, or the other one is, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you, right? It's like, yeah, let's switch places. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we always say those dumb parent things when kids say no to us, make us mad, or they make us start counting. I never did the counting thing. Some people get so mad they start counting, teach their little three-year-old kid in junior high math, start getting into fractions before they get to five and everything. It's crazy. 
Kids will make you do crazy things, but there's nothing, nothing better than being the other person in the room when somebody's kids telling them no, and they're trying to keep up social standards, right, and not go crazy on their kids. That's like just the best thing. But it's always hard. It's always difficult to tell somebody no, especially when they're in a position of authority or, or you know, like a boss or something like that. And I've kind of been fortunate. Most of my bosses, I, I've been able to tell them no at times, but I've always had like some facts, and I've always wondered how I would react if you know, I had a boss who told me to do something that I really disagreed with, and it was kind of like, you know, either do this or else. And actually, recently at my job, um, there was a lady who, who told all her bosses no, and it was around, she was an engineer, and they had, uh, the whole engineering group as a whole had messed up some stuff. They put some safety features in, and it turns out they weren't so safe, and <laughs> luckily we caught it before anybody was hurt badly, but anyway, um, no. Uh, and so they went around and they made everybody sign this paper and they put it in their file and it was like, it's going to affect their raises, it's going to affect promotions and all this stuff. And they came to her and they said, you got to you know, sign this paper. And she told them, no, she wasn't going to do it. She's like, I didn't work on that project. And she showed them and she had paperwork and everything. And here's what I worked on. Here's what I did. And they're like, look, the GM said, you have to sign this paper. And she said, I'm not going to do it. She's, and they're like, well, we'll fire you then. She goes, okay, hold on a second. I quit. And then she just walked out. And like everybody was like, oh, that's, gosh, she's got some character. That's pretty good. And then it turns out she was like the one engineer who knew what she was doing. So they called her back the next day, like, we need you to come back. We, we won't make you do the file, you know, thing, sign the thing. And she's like, no, I'm good. I'll, I'll get work elsewhere. And so don't go work at my job. <laughs> no. Um, but it's always difficult. It's always awkward to have to tell somebody no. And today we're going to look at a situation where, a couple young men dared to tell a king, no less, no, and God's response to them. And uh, I used all my creativity to come up with this title. It's called Rescued, and that's it. Taylor helped me out with the font and everything else. So, um, But our story is found in the book of Daniel chapter 3, and that's in the old section of your Bible, back where people had seriously weird names and couldn't hardly pronounce them, makes it hard to read. Uh, and we're going to be talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and King Nebuchadnezzar, or as Jared called them, Meshach, Yershach, and a bungalow. It's much easier to remember and say. And it's always, anybody ever wonder why they can't have normal names like Bob or Chuck, Ivan? I mean, <laughs> um, and it always makes me wonder, it's like, who came up with these names? What kind of person came up with these names? Who, who would ever name a person this, Right. And then I got to remembering that my dad wanted to name Jared Enoch. And I was like, oh, that kind of person. Okay. <laughs> now I can relate to the people in the Bible more. That's pretty awesome. Uh, can't believe you want to name a baby Enoch. Luck, Jared lucked out, though, man. Mom was there, and she's like, Dave, we can't name him Enoch. Have you seen the size of his head? Come on now. Sitting there drying his eyes with a hand towel. I was like, man. <laughs> <laughs> told you I had some jokes in here, man. Uh, parental abuse. And just, you know, so he lucked out. Now he's just Jared Enoch. But he's still teased a lot anyway. Big old melon. Um, but King Nebuchadnezzar, getting into the story. King Nebuchadnezzar, he's, he's the king of Babylon. Babylon was like just the, the it nation back then. They were conquering everyone. And uh, he was just one day walking around thinking of how great it is to be a king, right? Especially of this nation, the one he's over just kind of walking around, and he got to look around. He's like, you know what? I'm missing one thing. He goes, I don't have a statue. I need a statue of me, right? 
because, I mean, he's the biggest, baddest dude around. And so he gets his people together, and he's like, I want a statue of me. And, and so they go, and like, oh, we got some marble over here. We can make you a little statue. And he's like, no, I want this thing to be huge. Everybody's got to be able to see this thing. And so they built him a statue 90 feet tall, but only nine feet wide, which is, still bugs me because it's like that just doesn't seem the right width for that height. But 90 feet tall, nine feet wide is made of pure gold. Or I don't know if it's pure gold, at least overlaid with gold. And he, you know, they brought him out and said, here's your statue. And he's got to look and he's like, man, that is awesome. That's me up there, right? And so he's like, get everybody in Babylon. Everyone has to come out, whether they're, you know, been captured or whatever. Everybody has to come out and see my statue. And so everybody comes to the statue and they're looking at it. And he's like, all right, we're going to play some music, and everybody's got to bow and worship my statue because I'm the king, I've conquered all these lands, and everybody's got to pay homage to me. And so he gets the dust in the dust and nets, and they start playing their music and everything, and everybody bows, and everybody starts worshiping, except for these three guys, my shag, your shag, and a bungalow. They all didn't bow and worship. And there's a few guys, you know, you always have those people peeking when they're supposed to be praying to see who else is praying and all that. And so they, they tell on these guys, and they bring them before the king, and he gets mad at them because he's like, look, I told you all that if you didn't bow and worship me, that you're going to get thrown in this furnace that I just happen to have set up right here for you. And they're like, yeah, we heard that. And he's like, okay, well, I'm going to be a nice king. I'm going to be a gracious king. And so he gives them another chance. He goes, all right, we're going to do it again. We're going to play the music again, and everybody, everybody has to bow and worship my statue. And if you don't do it, you're going in the furnace. And if you don't do it, you're going to die. And he goes, and you got to think of what King Nebuchadnezzar was thinking. He's like, I already conquered these people once. So I'm going to kill you if you don't worship me. And there's no God that can save you from my power because I've already conquered you. In those days, if you conquered another nation, they usually thought it was because your God was bigger and your God was better than them. A lot of times they thought the kings were like descendants of the gods. And, and so in King Nebuchadnezzar's mind, there's no God that can save him save them from his power. And so the, he got the music started back up again, but the shacks in the bungalow, they stopped him. They're like, hey, wait, just hold on. Before everybody goes through all this stuff again, just we want you to know that no, we're not going to do it. We're not going to bow down to you. You can throw us in your furnace if you want, but we think we serve a God who is able to save us. We know we serve a God who is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power. But even if he doesn't, we want you to understand this, King. We will never, ever serve your gods or bow down to your statue. And the faith they have in God is really amazing. I mean, that's, it's a crazy kind of faith. It's kind of the faith pastor just finished a, a series on faith a couple weeks ago. And this fits so well with all he was saying there is it's not like a genie kind of faith, you know, where, you, man, I just bumped the car onto something. I hope this plunger pulls out the dent and I can fix over the paint before my wife notices and all that stuff. It's not that kind of like hopeful faith that, you know, something's going to go right for me and I'm just trusting I'm going to rub this lamp and trust that God's going to show up. This is a faith that I know my God is more than able to do this. I don't know if he will, but I know he can and I know he will. So I'm just going to put my life, I'm going to put this situation in his hands and let him decide how things go. And man, it's, it's, that's an amazing faith to have, and especially when you think of their current circumstances or their current predicament that they were in, it makes it all the crazier that they were willing to have this kind of faith, that they had this kind of faith. Israel as a nation had just turned their back on God. They had uh, started adopting some of the ways of the people group that they lived around. They started pulling in their gods and worshiping their gods. 
And that was the one thing God had told him you can't do as a nation that, you know, that has been set apart to me. Back when he brought them out of Egypt, you know, and he gave Moses the commandments. We liked, you know, the Ten Commandments or I think it's like 613 actually commandments. And he gave them those commandments and they all had one theme basically is, look, you're going to be my people. I'll be your God. I'm going to bless you. But there's a caveat because I'm going to bless you for a reason. I'm blessing you so that one day I can bless the entire world through you. But in order to do that, you can't be like Egypt from, you know, whose land you're coming. You can't worship their gods. You can't act like them. And at the same time, when you get to where I'm taking you, you can't be like any of the people around you. You can't have their gods. You can't do any of the things they do. Because if you do that and you start taking on their ways, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put you on timeout. I'm going to let them overtake you, let them rule over you, and let you see what life is like in their land. He goes, until you guys get tired of it and you repent, then I'll come and I'll rescue you from that, and you'll be ready to come back into our covenant. And, uh, and so this is where they were. They had just been overtaken by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and, uh, you know, they watched Nebuchadnezzar conquer Israel. They watched Jerusalem be ransacked. They'd watch their family members die and be enslaved by the Babylonians. They'd watch their friends die at the hands of the Babylonians. They'd watch the temple of the Most High God. They'd watch them walk in there, places they wouldn't even go. They'd watch these other people, groups, walk in there, take what was valuable, take what was, you know, worth something, and take it back to Babylon. And still, in spite of all of that, in spite of seemingly being abandoned by God, with no reason to think that God would ever listen to them at this time, because they you know, when you put your kid on timeout, they immediately start asking how long, how long, right? You just ignore them, right? It's like, it's not the time. You know you just got there. I'm not going to listen to you. And that's where they were. They just got put on timeout. And yet they were still willing to trust that God would hear them, that God would see them. And they still put themselves in the hands of God to do as he wanted. And much like us, sorry, I got to get a drink. I don't know how to the table up here, but. Apparently, pastor's like a camel and doesn't need drinks while he's talking. Anyway, <laughs> as King Nebuchadnezzar, you know, they told him no, as he heard them, and they told him no in front of everybody. He went much like all of us, and he just went nuts. He had given these guys a second chance, and they told him, you know, just no, a flat no in front of everyone before he really could even finish being a gracious king like he thought he was being. And so to teach them and everyone else around a lesson, he ordered that furnace to be heated up seven times hotter than normal, which in my mind doesn't make a lot of sense because if you want to punish somebody by throwing them in fire, you'd want it kind of cooler so it takes longer, right? I mean, that's the real punishment. I was kind of a vindictive parent maybe, but... Uh, um, and somebody, you know, tells him, heat that thing up seven times hotter than before. And um, I can't imagine the fear they must have had as they faced that furnace. I, I personally have never been burned, like, by an open flame or anything like that. Um, but my, my dad, actually, he showed us what it might have looked like one time if you were to be thrown into a furnace as we were kids. And Jared's grinning because I think he knows the story, or he should know the story. Um, my dad was great at giving us life lessons as kids, and as I was preparing for this this sermon or whatever, I got to thinking, it's like, man, this must have been one of dad's favorite stories, because he showed us, like, at least two different times, he had, you know, examples of what not to do with a furnace. Um, and so as kids growing up, uh, <laughs> he, he showed us a lot of life lessons. He probably could have told it to us, but 
it probably wouldn't have stuck as well. And, and the great thing, too, is he never told us when he was going to show us a life lesson. It was just like later on in life, like, oh, that's what dad was doing back then. And so um, he showed us that, you know, for a furnace, uh, to what it looked like for, you know, to be thrown in a furnace or almost be thrown in a furnace. And so we had this little insert that went into our fireplace, a little black insert. And it, we had a, a little tray. I think we call it a quick fire starter or something like that. It was almost like a mini bomb, really. <laughs> and you filled it with kerosene, and then you put it in the in the insert, and then you light that, and presto, you had fire. And uh, so one day, Dad filled the tray with kerosene, put it in the in the furnace, and then he got to being getting fancy, stacking his wood just so, making like a teepee out of it and all that stuff. Because I don't know why we closed the doors to it, so it's not like you could actually see what was going on in there. And so he was showing us that, you know, fumes can build up. We didn't even know what fumes were. It was like six years old, right? And, uh, and so the, he, he spent all his time doing that, and we were all in the living room. It was nighttime. We're, I think Jared and I were reading. I think Mom was greasing the side of Jared's head to get him through the doorway to bed. And, uh, and so <laughs> Dad goes, and he gets that thing all ready to go, and he, he throws the match in there to light that firewall obviously lights those fumes too, right? And he's down on his knees in front of that furnace, and this huge fireball comes shooting out of the furnace, like right in his face. And he taught us a couple things. One, if you uh, hit a note that Mariah Carey would be proud of, and it helps you jump backwards faster. I I didn't know that. I've yet to try it, but one of these days I'm going to try it. And so he goes just flying back, and he, you know, hits the couch, and we're all just kind of sitting there in stunned silence, like, oh, we almost watched Dad die, right? I mean, and he's sitting there, and, and he looks down, and I don't know why, he, it was middle of winter, but he didn't have a shirt on for some reason. And <laughs> he looks down, and he just starts brushing off all this singed chest hair. It's just gone, right? And then he, like, it hits him, and he runs to a mirror to check his eyebrows, and somehow he got his head out the way. It was, it was pretty crazy. But we learned that day, right? Oh, that's what it looks like to, you know, almost be thrown in a furnace. Oh, cool. I can relate now to the shacks in a bungalow. And, yeah, he was, him in that furnace, man, he almost killed us a few times with that thing. Another time, and this is how I learned how Nebuchadnezzar heated that thing up seven times hotter. It depends on what kind of wood you use. Another time, Dad, another life lesson, know what you're burning. And he got eucalyptus wood rather than, and he was going to use that instead of, I think we, I don't know what we use, pine, oak, neighbor's fence, whatever we use normally in the, in the furnace. And he, he put like three or four logs of eucalyptus wood in there. And that thing burned a lot hotter than whatever we normally did. So hot, in fact, that our furnace started glowing. It turned a black furnace, like cherry red glowing. And it heated up our house well, I mean, really well. So well, in fact, that we had to stand in the front yard in the middle of the night in winter, you know, warming ourselves with the heat emanating from our house. And, I, and it was, it was, he was teaching us global warming before there was global warming. I think it was a bad lesson, but it was still, it was a good, you know, a lesson. And <laughs> we... <laughs> We were just at my parents' house a couple days ago talking about other stories. I can't even make tie into this one. And I realized Jared and I had BB guns. We had bone arrows. We had tons and tons of hours of unsupervised time. We had firecrackers, all this. The most dangerous thing in our house was my dad. By f- 
not even close, right? I mean, not even, it's, it's crazy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, broken bones, dad, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, yeah. So Nebuchadnezzar, he threw some eucalyptus logs on his furnace, and he got that thing crazy hot, so hot, in fact, that his own men, while throwing, throwing these three guys into the furnace, died doing it. I mean, that's crazy, right? And then he sits back thinking, look, nobody's ever, ever going to tell me no again. This is the power I hold, the power I wield. And then he gets to look and is like, are those guys walking around in there? What in the world is going on? And there's a fourth guy in there now that looks like the son of God. And he's amazed at it. And he gets as far up in the front yard as he can and peers in there. And he's like, hey, you guys, come here. Come talk to me. And so they walk out. And he's amazed their clothes aren't singed. They don't even smell like smoke. And he looks at them, and he says something so powerful. He says, there is no other God that can rescue like this. And that's just, that stuck with me. I read this, man, a couple months ago, and this just been sticking with me. There's no other God that can rescue like this. And as you go through your Bible, you'll find that God is constantly, constantly at work rescuing people from physical harm like this, like from illness, like when he healed Peter's mother-in-law, you know, just walked in the house, healed her, nobody asked him to, and Peter's like, hey, whoa, <laughs> circle of life, God, you got to let it happen sometimes, right? And, <laughs> sorry, hope my mother-in-law doesn't listen to this, um, and, you know, but he just healed people constantly, right? He saves people from ourselves, he saves us from others. The story of the, the woman caught in adultery, to me, that's one of the most powerful rescue stories there are in the Bible. Here's this woman is, she's caught doing something wrong, but she becomes a pawn in some self-righteous guy's plans, right? They're trying to show Jesus up. They're trying to show that he's really not much different than them, or if he is, he's actually blaspheming the, their, their, uh, their scriptures, and, and God's able to speak to that situation, right? He's able to call them out for what they are, and at the same time, forgive that woman. And give her some modesty of, of, or um, some form of, of respect that she can walk away with it. Here, this one that was able to condemn me, but he chose not to. He has love for me. And she still had a tough road to go, but it's an amazing rescue story. And in, in this room, there's stories of rescue. There's stories of healing. There's stories of God just making changes in our lives that's so amazing. And it's beautiful and sometimes hard to believe as these rescue stories are, like that God is able to save someone from a furnace, right? There were only hints about something bigger, something better that was to come. And quite frankly, something even more difficult to believe. They were flashes of God's grace and of God's love for people. But they all pointed to an event that God had planned from the moment Adam and Eve had told him no. From the moment they decided that they were going to eat the apple or whatever kind of fruit it was, God had put in motion a plan of rescue for all of humanity. And all through the Old Testament, he gave hints, and he mentioned a coming day when there would be one that would repair the broken relationship between us and between him. Something common in all of us, something we all gain from Adam and Eve, is this need to be rescued. We all have it. We all have this thing inside of us that makes us say no to a God that has our best interest in mind. It makes us do things we're not proud of, right? It causes us to hurt people we love. It causes us to hurt people we actually care about. Um, Paul, in writing to the Romans, and if you don't know who Paul is, he's a writer in the New Testament, and he has an amazing rescue story himself. But Paul, in writing to the Romans, uh, said this in 7 and 21. He said, I have discovered this principle, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. 
And he goes on to say that there is something innate in all of us that makes us a slave to sin. And it's the sin that weighs us down. And, and no matter how hard we try, we can't escape its grasp. It's this sin that causes us to, to react and reach out and hurt people that we care for and hurt ourselves, right? And God knew that we had nothing that we could pay, that we could give to help us escape from its grasp. God knew there was nothing we could do in of, our, of ourselves to escape this nature that is in all of us. And so he set up a plan to rescue us. And he gave hints all through time of what this plan would look like. But in Isaiah 53, he gets so specific on what it's going to cost and look like for this plan to work. And it's amazing. Isaiah 53 is written some 600 years before Jesus stepped on the scene. And if you can help me out, Taylor, best looking person back there because it's just her and Ed. So, yeah, definitely best person looking back there. Isaiah 53, starting with verse 3 through 11, says, And he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed or made right with God. And all of us, turn to your neighbor and say, that's you. Three of you said it. Awesome. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan or Lord's rescue plan will prosper in his hands. And when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all all their sins. And what makes God's rescue plan so amazing isn't that Jesus was willing to suffer because many have suffered, right? Many have suffered for their loved ones, suffered for friends, they've suffered horrible deaths. And it isn't that he was willing to suffer and die for, uh, for a friend. It was the fact that he was willing to suffer and die for a people that rejected him and wanted nothing to do with him. While the world around him was telling him no, he went to a cross guilty of nothing and bore not only the physical suffering of a cross, of dying on a cross and all the beating that took, uh, happened before that. He took on all that, but not just that. He took on the weight of every sin of the entire world at that same time. He took on my sin and your sin. Regardless of our response to him, he died for us. He died for you. He died for me. And he did all of this despite knowing our every shortcoming, knowing our every fault. You know, the, 
we all have those things that we hope our spouse never knows about, right? There's some things I hope Lacey never finds out of me about me. There's some thoughts that run through my mind every now and then when she's yelling at me from, to get out from underneath that bed that I hope she never hears, right? But no, there's some things that I hope my kids never find out about me. There's some choices I've made I hope they never know. There's some things I hope my friends never find out about me. But God knows it. He knows it all. And yet, knowing all of that, he thought you and I were worth everything. He thought you and I were worth every, every punishment, every weight that he took on. And I honestly don't understand all of God's love and his grace. It's kind of hard to comprehend what it all entails. How can he love us that much? We like to think a lot of times that, you know, I love my wife more than anything, and I would do anything for her regardless of how she acts. But it's not really that way, right? I mean, honestly, if you think about it, for a relationship to work, there has to be some back and forth in that, right? You have to see the other person doing something, or if not, that relationship is going to be, it's going to be hard. It's going to be broken, really. It's going to be difficult, and yet God loved us when we were unlovable. God loved us when we were firmly on the no side. I don't want anything to do with you. I'm good on my own. God loved us, and he had grace for us. He had no real expectation of us from this, and it's you know, it's hard to understand that kind of love because I don't know that kind of love necessarily on a physical person-to-person love. But God's love and his grace is a constant in spite of us and constant in spite of what we do. Um, There's a song that I've had stuck in my head for a while. uh, It's called Known by Torn Wells. And it says, it says this in, I think, part of the chorus. It says, it's a hard truth and a ridiculous grace to be known fully known and loved by you. The fact that God knows everything about us and loves us anyway, it's amazing that one so perfect could love us in all of our mess, right? And everything that we have going on in our life, it's amazing that God is there loving us. They're showing us grace. They're showing us mercy, that he would go through it all. If we can all stand this morning, and what makes this rescue plan even more amazing, if, if it can be more amazing, is he doesn't now stand in judgment of us or even stand demanding anything of us, demand that we recognize this sacrifice, demand that we recognize anything he has or accept this. Rather, he stands calling. He's calling us. He's calling us to compare his grace, his love to the nature that is within us, that nature that causes us so much hurt and so much pain. And he's offering a free exchange for his righteousness. He's offering to freely exchange our past, our brokenness, for a relationship with God. Something we cannot get on our own. Something we cannot do on our own. He's willing to give that freely in exchange for your pain and your brokenness. The Bible says he stands at the door knocking, waiting for anyone, anyone to open the door and receive him. It doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter where you come from or where you've been. His rescue plan is for you, and it's full of love, and it's full of grace, and it's full of mercy, and it will cover anything, anything. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.